We're going to focus in on those verses I just read to you. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. But we're going to make an approach toward those verses, skimming along the surface of the entire book of Zephaniah, examining it as a whole from a bird's eye view to get the sense of the context before we make a close approach to those final 12 verses. We're not going to work through the whole book of Zephaniah verse by verse because that would take more time than we have. Instead, we're going to read a selection of verses as we examine Zephaniah's two major themes. By the time we're done our overview, we actually will have read almost one half of the book of Zephaniah, giving us a good representation of the whole and a good feel for the overall message of the book. And then we're going to focus in on Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. As you'll see, there are two themes running through the book of Zephaniah. Judgment and salvation. If you read through in its entirety on your own time at home this week, you'll see what I mean. Zephaniah puts forward two and only two major themes. Judgment and salvation. We'll look at both in turn. First judgment and then salvation. So let's begin with judgment, answering two questions as we go. The first question pertaining to judgment is, who are the recipients of God's judgment? And then the second question that we're going to answer is, what prompts God's judgment? So here we go. Question number one regarding judgment. Who are the recipients of God's judgment? Zephaniah chapter 1 Verses 2 and 3 tell us that the whole human race is under God's judgment. Let's read it. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah promises judgment against man and beast. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea. God says He will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. Throughout the remainder of chapter 1 and into the first couple verses of chapter 2, Zephaniah promises judgment against the nation of Judah in which he lives. Judah is under God's judgment. But Zephaniah doesn't stop there. Zephaniah chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 contain Zephaniah's pronouncements of judgment against all the other nations as well. And so, in keeping with what he says right at the beginning, Zephaniah chapter 1, Verses 2 and 3. Who is exempt from God's judgment? No one. Judah and all the other nations as well. No one is exempt from God's judgment. Is this judgment temporally tied 
only to the people who were alive at that time, who were walking the earth roughly 2,600 years ago when Zephaniah was written. That is the primary judgment that's in view. Zephaniah wasn't prophesying only about people in a future time. He was warning contemporaries of immediate, impending judgment. The fall of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians is often called, throughout the prophetic writings, the day of the Lord. And history tells us that Judah was indeed wiped out by the Babylonians. And that all of the other nations which God thundered against here in Zephaniah and elsewhere and some of the other prophetic writings certainly did get a taste of God's judgment at that time. But has the prophecy in chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 been fulfilled yet? Has there been a universal judgment in which God wipes out Every creature walking the face of the earth. Of course not. So there's an outstanding aspect of God's judgment yet to take place. Here, and in several other places, throughout Scripture, we encounter the prediction that God will definitively judge the whole world at once. At the end of this present age. There will be a day when God comes in wrath. To destroy this earth as we know it. And to judge its inhabitants. And this day is also often called in scripture. The day of the Lord. So when you read the day of the Lord in the prophetic writing. Sometimes it refers to. The Babylonian conquest, and sometimes it refers to this end of the ages judgment. So, two planes of judgment are often in view in the prophets in general and here in Zephaniah. There's an immediate plane of judgment, the impending attack of the Babylonians, and then there's a future plane of judgment. There's a commingling of near future and far future events some have likened this phenomenon of the way that these prophecies appear together commingled in the prophetic writings some have likened this phenomenon to a person standing on a mountaintop and seeing a mountain range spread out in front of them and the man on top of the mountain describes what he sees There's one mountain, and then right next to it, another mountain. And then right next to it, another mountain. That's how it appears to him. From his vantage point, that's what it looks like. When in reality, mountain peaks that seem to be right next to each other can actually be miles away from one another. And so the prophets speak as if this day of the Lord and this day of the Lord are one. Because they're seeing these... Judgments commingled together from their vantage point. So the nation of Judah and all other nations mentioned in Zephaniah did experience an immediate judgment. 
God's wrath was poured out upon them in tangible ways back then, roughly 2,600 years ago. This judgment was indirect, coming through human agents. Through war and conflict, God visited judgment upon the nations back then. Each day of those judgments was, in some sense, the day of the Lord for that nation. The coming of judgment. The coming of the Lord in judgment upon those nations. And there is yet a pending judgment coming for the whole earth. A future judgment. On the last day, both Zephaniah and the rest of Scripture tell us that God will pour out His wrath directly upon the whole earth. On that day, God won't use human agents. He Himself will be the agent of judgment. He will personally and directly vent His anger upon the earth. And Scripture tells us that God will even resurrect people from their graves in order to witness and participate in the events of that day. This is the day of the Lord in another sense. Both you and I will witness that day of the Lord. Whether we experience the wrath of God in this life or not, we will inevitably witness and participate in some way in the events of the coming day of the Lord, which includes the outpouring of God's wrath upon the human race. God will judge everyone and vent His wrath upon the deserving in that coming day of the Lord. No one is exempt from passing under God's judgment. So, everyone is the recipient of God's judgment. Everyone will be judged by God sooner or later. What precipitates God's wrath? What prompts God's judgment? Why will God bring every person who has ever walked the face of the earth into judgment? Let's read Zephaniah 1 and verse 17 to find an answer. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. I will bring distress on mankind because they have sinned against the Lord. We have all sinned. The inhabitants of Judah had sinned. The inhabitants of all the other nations around them had sinned. It is because all have sinned that all are recipients of God's judgment. That all are deserving of God's poured out wrath, anger, and punishment. God brings everyone into judgment because everyone has sinned. Sin is a universal thing, common to people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Sin is a universal thing, and so God's judgment is a universal thing. What is sin? 
Zephaniah answers that question indirectly too by specifying the specific things that have stirred up God's anger. If we backtrack now to Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 4 to 6, we're going to see specifically what the nations had done to incur God's wrath. And we know, remember, that the summary of it is, is sin. Chapter 1 verses 4 to 6 are going to tell us specifically what types of behavior is called sin. In verse 17, God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Here we read that Judah failed to worship the one true God as they should. This is what kindled God's wrath. Sin is ultimately a worship issue. Sin is the misdirected allegiance, adoration, and obedience of our hearts. Towards someone or something other than the one true God. This is what sin is. It is fundamentally a worship issue. Let's look a little bit closer at this misdirected worship that was happening in Judah at this time. There are three categories of people in verses 4 to 6 of Zephaniah chapter 1. Idolaters, syncretists. And what we could call non-devotees. Idolaters are those who worship idols. That is, those who worship false gods rather than the one true God. Verse 4 says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, false god. And the name of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Worshipping the creature, or the creation rather than the creator. This is all idolatry. This is the worship of false gods. In our context today, it might be people like Hindus, Muslims. They are explicitly worshipping different gods than we worship. Idolaters. Then there are syncretists. Syncretists are those who mix the worship of false gods with the worship of the true God. Look at verse 5. It says, Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, the true God, and yet swear by Milcom, a false God. As I understand it, in our context here, this might be people like spiritual Baptists, Rastas, prosperity gospel preachers, Roman Catholics, etc. They claim to worship the God of the scriptures even. But pollute his worship by mixing it functionally with the worship of other things. Or they claim to worship our God, but they so distort the biblical data of who he is, that he's not the God of the Bible anymore.
Those sorts of people are syncretists. But this is also, this category is also us. We are syncretists. Any moment that we give equal or greater importance in our lives to anything other than God. Any moment in which something is as important to us as God, we swear by the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Think family, career, hobby, whatever. Think of the impurity and impiety of our hearts. When, for example, a single person goes to church partly to see a guy or a girl they like. And their minds or hearts are consumed with a romantic interest even as they feign interest in the living God. What is that but syncretism? Swearing by the Lord and yet swearing by Milko. Or think of the gap between your profession to worship God on Sundays and the many distractions in your heart that displace God from the center on the other six days of the week. What is this but syncretism? Swearing by the Lord and yet swearing by Bilka. Syncretism is also present in us anytime we claim to worship God but pollute His worship functionally. When we think of Him as we imagine Him to be instead of as who He actually is. To understand how this is operative in your life, just think of how you justify unbiblical thoughts, words, Actions or lifestyles, saying to yourself, God won't mind. Or it's not that big of a deal when in fact God has explicitly addressed these issues and said it is a big deal. Functional syncretism. Then there's a third category of people mentioned in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, who we're calling tonight non-devotees the verse talks about those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him that's verse 6 so idolatry and syncretism aside simply not to seek the Lord and not to inquire of Him is sin in God's eyes Maybe you're not explicitly worshipping a false god. You're not explicitly claiming to worship the true God and mixing that worship with other things. You're just not worshipping anyone at all, or so you think. You're just not worshipping God at all. You're just a non-devotee. Again, if we were to bring this cross into our context, we might say that this is unbelievers out at Harbor Lights or wherever on the weekend, or that this is a, the professor at UE who professes to be non-religious, 
This is secularists, atheists, agnostics, people out there. Or again, we could acknowledge that it's all too often us also. When we are prayerless, we are failing to seek the Lord and inquire of Him. How how would you describe a prayerless day? Maybe like this? Not seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him? So you see, it's not just it's not just those evil people out there. It is those evil people out there, but it's also those evil people in here. We are often non-devotees as well. I hope none of us are explicitly claiming to worship Allah or Krishna or something like this. So that first category of just outright, outright idolatry doesn't really fit but it could fit when other things take God's place there's definitely at least syncretism in our lives as we mix the worship of God with giving other things equal or greater importance than God and certainly we see that just not seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him is a thing for us What we see then is that just as God had grounds to be wrathful towards the people of Judah and the other nations who were acting in these ways, so God has grounds to be wrathful towards us. For we are doing these same kinds of things. God demands to be the sole person in the number one spot of our lives all the time. Just think of a verse like this. My glory I will not share with another. God doesn't want to be part of your life. Don't invite Him to be part of your life. Don't let any invitation to make Jesus part of your life pass for a gospel invitation. Because that's not what conversion is. It's not making Jesus part of your life. But it is making God the sole person in the number one spot of our lives. All the time. Anything less than God alone above all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our passions, all of our ambitions, all of our aspirations, above all our family members, above all our friends, above all our hobbies, anything less than God alone, above all of those things, in the number one spot in our importance or value scale. Anything less than that is idolatry, syncretism, Or simply being a non-devotee. Anything else, anything less than enjoying God Himself. Enjoying God Himself. Above anything else in the world. Is idolatry, 
or syncretism or non-devotion. Anything less than allowing God's will alone to shape our worldviews, attitudes, words, or behaviors is idolatry, syncretism, or non-devotion. Do you wake up every day and spend every moment guided by this one thought? God is everything to me. And I delight to do His will. If not, there is in your life idolatry, syncretism, and or non-devotion. And idolaters, syncretists, and non-devotees incur God's wrath. So what hope is there for us? We've seen that we are all idolaters at times, at least syncretists on many occasions. And non-devotion, we have to acknowledge that we're guilty as charged. None of us, Christians included, none of us, Christians included, love and worship God the way that we are. So we have a worship problem, which means we have a sin problem. None of us have God in the number one spot 24-7. None of us are 100% devoted to God 100% of the time. So we are all deserving of God's wrath. God could well say of us, as He said of these people in Zephaniah 1.17 I will bring distress on all the people at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church of Barbados tonight, December 23rd because they have sinned against the Lord. There will be a day of judgment. This is what Zephaniah prophesies. Judgment upon Judah in the near future for Zephaniah and his contemporaries. And judgment upon the whole world. Remember Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Zephaniah prophesies not only is there a near future judgment, but there's a far future judgment coming upon the whole world. You and I have to reckon with that coming judgment. Because we are in the same boat as these people in Judah in Zephaniah's day. So that's what Zephaniah does in chapters 1 and 2 and in the first portion of chapter 3. Everything up to chapter 3, including up to and including verse 8 is basically dealing with judgment there's basically no good news in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 8 and Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8 sums up the message of the book so far therefore wait for me declares the Lord for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms 
to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's basically summative of the book so far. However, in verse 9 of Zephaniah chapter 3, the tone of the book shifts dramatically. And Zephaniah begins to address the theme of salvation. Remember the two themes that are, that are running through Zephaniah. Judgment and salvation. And we see especially three things about salvation here throughout the rest of Zephaniah chapter 3. The first is that God accomplishes salvation. God accomplishes salvation. If we are to be saved from God's wrath, someone must save us. And who will it be? Zephaniah answers this question clearly. Sixteen times in chapter 3, God is attributed with the salvation of His people. Let's read again Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And as I read it, listen for all the actions of God on behalf of His people. Throughout most of this section, it's God speaking in the first person. Listen to how many times then God says, I will. I will. Or something similar. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel... They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Who? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Who? He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And then God speaks, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. 
Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. If we are to be saved from the coming wrath of God on the day of the Lord, someone must save us. And God Himself does it. If we are to be saved, someone must remove the obstacles to our salvation. And verses 9 to 20 show us that God Himself will do that. Sixteen times here in chapter 3 alone, God is attributed with the salvation of His people. After you read those verses, you cannot come away with the idea that these people are going to save themselves. You cannot come away with the idea that they're going to call the king of Egypt or the king of Assyria and he's going to deliver them. After you read those verses, one thing is clear. It is God who will save His people. That's the first thing we see about salvation here in this passage. The second thing that we see about salvation in this passage is that it is multifaceted. Like a diamond which has many sides, each of which is beautiful and worthy of our admiration, so it is with our salvation. We sometimes think only about the forgiveness of sins when we think about salvation. But so much in addition to that is included in our salvation. Let's look through these verses and see specifically what God has promised through the prophet Zephaniah to do to save His people. God promises in verses 9 and 10 to include Gentiles in salvation. At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. From all over the world, God is gathering to Himself a people. This point is to be neither assumed nor overlooked. It could well have been otherwise. If the wages of sin is death, God could have simply and justly paid out the wages due to the Gentiles and left it at that. But many of the gracious promises that God makes to Israel in the Old Testament are repeatedly said to apply to Gentiles as well as Jews in their fulfillment. 
And here's a case in point. God says that He will change the speech of the peoples, i.e. the nations, the Gentiles, to a pure speech. That we will all worship together, every nation, with one accord. God will call worshipers from beyond the rivers of Cush. Again, this means Gentiles. The reason that we even have a gospel to preach here in Barbados. The reason that we have a gospel to preach anywhere outside the borders of the nation of Israel. Is that God has declared that he will be gracious to all nations. The second thing that we see as we look at some additional specifics of what God has promised to do in saving His people in addition to forgiving our sins is to remove the unrepentant from the midst of those whom He saves. Look at verses 11 to 13. Though the salvation that God promises is worldwide in scope and includes the Gentiles as well as the Jews, it doesn't include all people without exception, but merely all people without distinction. This means that, as the old Sunday school song says, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in His sight. Yet not all red, not all yellow, not all black, not all white, will be saved in the end. There are proudly exalted ones from every tribe and language and people and nation who do not, as verse 12 says, seek refuge in the name of the Lord. There are those who, verse 13 says, do injustice, speak lies, and have deceitful tongues. And they will be gathered out of the midst of those whom God saves. God's offer of salvation to all people must be humbly received by all people if all people are going to be saved. The third thing that we see the third aspect of salvation, third facet of salvation that we see in this passage, is that God will take away judgments that stand against His people. This is what we typically think of when we think of salvation. To all who will take refuge in His name, who are not proud and exalted, God extends pardon for sins. This is God forgiving idolaters and syncretists and non-devotees for our misdirected worship. This is God being gracious to His people. Though our sins be as scarlet, this aspect of salvation is God making them white as snow. This taking away of the judgments that stood against us is justification. And this is one that we unpack, and rightly so, over and over again. If the diamond has many wonderful facets and one, many wonderful aspects, surely this is the most wonderful of them all. This is the objective dimension of salvation. God does not count our sins against us any longer. He forgives He pardons. It's judicial. It's forensic. It's a legal transaction. 
It doesn't matter how we feel about it. True is true. Fact is fact. He takes away the judgments against us. As those who even tonight have been convicted of the sin of our idolatries, the sin of our syncretism, the sin of our non-devotion, what good news that God takes away the judgments against His people. Christ bears the judgments that were against us in Himself at the cross. He clothes us in His righteousness so that there is no more legal case to be made against us. Christ has answered the demands of the law for us on our behalf. This is the objective dimension of salvation. But there's a subjective dimension of our salvation too. We actually experience that which is legally ours. We see that God promises here to quiet His people by His love. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. Christian, do you ever feel like you're not forgiven? Even though you know that you're forgiven? Do you ever feel like God doesn't love you? Even though you know that God loves you? God promises here to still our souls. To help our souls learn to be quiet. To rest and trust. To feel and to experience that which is legally ours in our justification. That our sins are gone. That we are loved. Sometimes there's quite a distance between our heads and our hearts. And our hearts can go crazy in spite of the facts. We can hurt. We can become sad. We can even become angry. We can become unsettled in so many ways. And God here promises to still us. To quiet us with His love. To remove the angst. To remove the pain. To remove the hurt. By His love. Till we are resting. Trusting. And at peace. Sometimes my sons, like most other children, I would say all, but probably there's some sweet, sweet little children out there. Sometimes my sons, like most other children, have bad tempers. We address these tempers in all kinds of ways timeouts, consequences of other sorts, biblical spanking, etc. But sometimes what I do, sometimes what I do, is I just hold them while their hearts are going crazy. And I just tell them over and over, I love you. Until they're quiet. Until all the hurt is gone. 
I quiet them with my love. Perhaps on the day of the Lord, after all of our, after our hearts have been going crazy for so long down here, experiencing so much angst, so much sadness, so much hurt, perhaps even anger, whatever it may be, God will, as it were, take us up in His arms and tell us in like manner over and over I love you until we're at rest in His arms God will quiet us by His love and this aspect or facet of salvation is summative of or related to a few other aspects of salvation that Zephaniah gives us here. Look at verse 18. Joy to the morning. When the Lord quiets us with His love, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things shall have passed away. God will take away reproach from us. Also verse 18. When the Lord quiets us with His love, we will no longer have cause for shame. We will be free from our sin, both the penalty and the power. We will be home. We will belong. Look at verse 19. God will gather the outcasts. Perhaps we will experience shame, dishonor, rejection, and reproach now. But it won't always be that way. God will take away our shame and gather us into Himself. Even if no one else wants us now, God Himself wants us. And will gather us to Himself then. As Psalm 27 and verse 10 says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The Lord will also free us from oppression. Look at verse 19. No longer shall we be rejected, and no longer shall we be mistreated. As Christians, here and now, we are not only the objects of passive rejection, but often the objects of active mistreatment as well. We are the butt of jokes. We are mocked and ridiculed. We're taken advantage of. And we are, in many places in the world, still even physically persecuted. On the day of the Lord, we shall be safe. God will deal with our oppressors. And on the day of the Lord, the lame shall walk. Look at verse 19. God will save the lame. The physical lame shall walk. The physically blind shall see. Those wasting away with cancer shall have their strength 
restored. And those who are emotionally limping, heavenward, struggling through this life, will finally make it home. I've told you before about my friend in Canada who had a terrible upbringing. He struggles with various mental illnesses and I believe experiences some demonic influence in his life. He's had a rough life and still has a rough life in many ways. And to be fair, some of his difficulties he has brought on himself or continues to bring on himself. And yet he's a Christian. And yet he struggles. We need to have a category for that. He told me once something like this. When I get to heaven... I don't care if I have a mansion. I don't care if I'm far away from the center of everything. I don't care if I just have to mow the lawn every day. I'll just be happy to be there. You understand? People like that are limping. Maybe not physically, but they're limping. And God shall save the lame. He won't be limping anymore. So we see that salvation is of the Lord. It's God who saves. We see that salvation is multifaceted. It's both legal and experiential. Not only just objectively does Jesus die for our sins and give us his righteousness and a legal transaction occurs whereby our sins are pardoned and we're counted as righteous. Oh, but God draws us to himself and quiets us with his love. And we feel the care that he has for us. And this leads us to the third thing that we see about salvation in Zephaniah 3 which is this that God delights to save us he delights to do this for us our salvation is a trinitarian work God the Father loved us with an everlasting love and set a plan in motion to pour out His love upon us justly. The Son was sent to do what it would take for God to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And the Holy Spirit came to us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. When we were blind to the glories of Christ. And even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at that time, made us alive together with Christ. 
Our salvation is a Trinitarian work. And because our salvation is a Trinitarian work, it's not just the Son who is happy to save us, but the Father and the Spirit too. Our triune God is a God who sings with joy when He brings His children home. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. What would that be? One day God will take you somehow set His attention on you. And sing over you. He'll be so glad that you are there. That you are home. God will rejoice over you with gladness and exalt over you with loud singing. Consider the Father in Luke 15 in the so-called parable of the prodigal son. There are actually three parables in that chapter which each drive home the same point. That there's great joy in heaven when sinners repent. But the Father gives us such a poignant picture of God's joy in saving sinners. Perhaps that parable helps us understand something of what it will be like when God rejoices over us with gladness, when He exalts over us with singing. Perhaps that picture of the Father gathering up His robe and running towards His Son gives us a picture something like what we will experience when God rejoices over us with gladness and exalts over us with loud singing. Musicians can tell you the Psalms can tell you And music is a way of expressing the overflow of joy in our hearts. We sing when our hearts are full of joy. This is why, incidentally, God commands us to sing. It's part of our expressing our enjoyment in Him. 
The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end and duty of man? And the answer is, the chief end and duty of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are to enjoy God. How amazing it is to think that that God enjoys us. And He will sing with the overflow of joy in His heart when His plan of redemption reaches its consummation. He will be so pleased when we are at home with Him. Do you think of God as one who will enjoy you in eternity? Do you think of God as one who will be glad to have you home with Him in eternity? John Owen says, How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon Him? What fears, what questionings are there of His goodwill and kindness? At best, many think there is no sweetness at all in Him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. It is true, that alone is the way of communication. But the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, and let me just stop with an explanatory note here. What he's saying is, Jesus didn't die to get God to love you. Jesus died because God loved you already. See? Let us then, I the Father... As love. Look not on him as an always lowering father, but as one most kind and tender. Let us look on him by faith, as one that has had thoughts of kindness towards us from everlasting. In Zephaniah's day, There were those who said, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. In other words, their view was that God is a far away, distant, unconcerned deity, uninvolved in human affairs. People were misdirecting their worship away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord and engaging in idolatry syncretism, or simply non-devotion to God. And really, as we've seen, we're in the same situation here in Barbados even today. Many people disregard God as a faraway, distant, unconcerned deity, uninvolved in human affairs. And many are misdirecting their worship away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord and are engaging in idolatry, syncretism, or simply non-devotion to God.
But we've seen here in Zephaniah that God actually cares immensely how we live. He cares about our attitudes, our worship, our religious life. And He will either bring judgment upon us or He will save us. That ultimate judgment or salvation will happen on the same day. The day of the Lord, which is coming. I would remind you of Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8 where God says, Wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. The day of the Lord is coming. You may wonder when and how. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish. But that all should reach redemption. Pardon me. That all should reach repentance. Again, against those. Contrary to those in Zephaniah's day. Who said the Lord will not do good. Nor will he do ill. Zephaniah promises that in fact. He will do both. The day is coming when He will do good to some and do ill to others. Are you ready for that day? Will you be among those whose condemnation is taken away? Will you be one of those who will be quieted by God's love? And will you hear Him singing over you? If the answer is yes, what a privilege, what a blessing, what a hope. Someday, soon, all this shall come to pass for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone is not trusting in Christ, of course, you ought to come in repentance and faith to the only one who can save. Remember, salvation is a Trinitarian thing. There's only one plan to save sinners. God the Father sent God the Son and God the Holy Spirit testifies of Him and applies the Son to all those who will be saved. Salvation is only in and through Jesus Christ. There is salvation in none other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If anyone is not in Christ Jesus, you've heard about the judgments that are coming, the wrath that is to be poured out. Let even those things drive you to Christ to flee from the wrath that is to come. But you've also heard about the blessedness of those who are in Christ Jesus.
You've also heard of the goodness, the kindness, the love of God. Let the wrath push you to Christ. Let the goodness, the love of God pull you to Christ. Hear God offering you refuge in the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear Him offering to take away the judgments against you. Hear Him offering to quiet you with His love. Hear Him offering to sing over you on the last day. Hear Him offering to deal with your oppressors, to bring you into Himself, and to heal your lameness. Hear Him calling, come to me.